The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. After her husband was killed during a robbery attempt, Renee Poole's multiple affairs and second life as a stripper made her the main suspect in his murder. But who was the gunman? And why would he want Brent Poole dead? I'm Vinnie Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have an audio edition of our original series, Accomplice to Murder, which looks at cases and verdicts that may not be as clear-cut as initially thought. Take a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. It was a warm, peaceful evening when Renee Poole and her husband Brent went for a walk on this secluded part of Myrtle Beach. It was their third wedding anniversary, and the weekend was supposed to help them heal a rift in their marriage. But instead, Brent ended up dead, and Renee was accused of manipulating a man she had met while dancing at a strip club into becoming an accomplice to murder. But is it possible that police got it wrong and arrested the wrong man and Renee was guilty of nothing more than of just being unfaithful. Renee and Brent met when they were in high school. He was a senior, she was a freshman. They dated for a while. Uh, Renee did become pregnant with their child. They did get married, both still very young, uh, but they were able to buy a house and. He, uh, he had a job uh, with Mac, the, the trucking company. But after their daughter Katie was born, the young couple ran into financial difficulties. It was fine at first uh, until Katie come. Katie was a handful. Uh, Renee had no help. Brent worked at night. On the weekends, he took off riding with his friends and left her at home with the baby. She had no what you call escape time, away from a, a, a baby. To help make ends meet, Renee took a job as a dancer at the Silver Fox Gentlemen's Club. Renee worked at the Silver Fox upon her husband's request. We did not like it. That's not the way she was brought up. Um, we talked to Brent. He said, well, it pays the bills. Her mother called me and told me what she was doing, and I was keeping Katie at the time, thinking she was working a regular job. And I was very, very disappointed. But working at the Silver Fox gave her a newfound freedom and extra cash. The money did play a big part of it because they were having some financial issues. Um, I also think that she liked male attention, um, female attention, any kind of attention that she could get. While she was dancing at the club, one man in particular caught her eye. Renee and John Boy Frazier did meet at the Silver Fox. He was a DJ there. Uh, they became friendlier, um, ended up having an affair. At that point, he knew she had moved in with John, but did not know there was an actual, he still wanted to believe they were friends. And I said, Brent, you don't move in, when you're married, you don't move in with a male. But she eventually thought twice about the affair. When she realized, my job, being an exotic dancer, I think someone told her, or probably multiple people told her, you're never going to get custody of, of Katie. So then she 
left John Boyd Frazier's house, moved back in with Brent. After reconciling, the couple decided to celebrate their third wedding anniversary here in Myrtle Beach. They brought along their daughter and stayed at the Carolina Winds Hotel. Once they decided to, you know, get back together and, and work on their marriage, they decided to bring Katie with them, who was very young at the time, and just make it a family trip and more or less of a, like a second honeymoon. But the honeymoon soon turned into a nightmare for the young couple. Interviewed a few days later, Renee told a reporter what happened next on the evening of their first night in Myrtle Beach. We ain't got a babysitter for our daughter. And uh, decided to go out on the beach. There, there were a lot of people out on the beach at the time. So we started walking, um, sort of away from everything. Brent and Renee wandered to a secluded area of the beach where they stopped and enjoyed an intimate moment together. When they started to make their way back to the hotel, they noticed something strange. We saw um, someone pass by us going the opposite direction. It was a man dressed in all black. Although the night was warm, he was wearing long sleeves, long pants, and had on a ski mask. After passing the couple, he turned and began to follow them. He quickly overtook the couple, brandished a pistol, and demanded their money and jewelry. He then ordered them both to lie down in the sand and pointed his gun directly at Brent. And uh, please don't shoot me. The guy asked him, why shouldn't I? He said, because I have a two-year-old daughter that I love very much. And he shot him. I had heard the gun go off. And I had my eyes closed. I just knew that he was going to kill me next. And uh, I got up and he ran away. And uh, finally a police officer came to help us. But I keep thinking that he's going to come home. I just, I can't believe it. I don't want to believe it. After speaking with Brent's parents, police brought Renee down for some more questioning here at the Myrtle Beach Police Department. From the very beginning, the parents were very suspicious of Renee and essentially said, um, if my son's dead, then Renee's a part of it. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, young couple like that, they're not going to be walking on the beach with a lot of money. But none of it added up. And the more uh, we got into it, the more we firmly believed that she had to be a part of it. And what Renee was telling the police didn't quite add up. Her account was not perfectly consistent with the crime scene, and her story began to shift. Her story was, at first she was saying she didn't know who did it, you know, but she's a witness. She saw all this. Why didn't he do anything to her? Of course, the police were questioning that. Like, why is she still alive? Well, why wasn't she hurt? Because she saw this whole thing. Law enforcement didn't believe at that time that um, she was being truthful about her statement. They knew that she was living with another man. They knew she was an exotic dancer. You know, that she had had multiple, multiple affairs. 
Um, and then we started hearing about this John Boyd Frazier. We knew that they were looking at both of them. The police tracked down John Boyd Frazier, who lived four to five hours away near Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They appeared to have woken him up, and he told them he'd been sick in bed all night. But still suspicious of his whereabouts earlier in the night, police continued to question Renee. And though when they started to talk to her about John Boyd Frazier, she, you know, initially was no, 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 no. Then maybe, 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 I don't know. Then her own lawyer, a divorce attorney who had helped Renee's sister, urged her to talk. And that's when her story starts to change. Do you have any further information? Or do you want to change that story as that we need to believe? Oh, the traitor the children of Okay, I believe. I don't believe that if you know. John. John who? Frazier. So she threw John Boyd Frazier under the bus um, to save herself, which would be um, very consistent with her sort of um, pathos around what, you know, you know, she wanted for herself. Renee's news story triggered two arrest warrants, murder for him and obstruction of justice for her. And on June 13, 1998, the police arrested John Boyd Frazier at his parents' home in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Did you kill him? I did not kill Brent Poole. That same night, police arrest Kimberly Renee Poole in the parking lot of the funeral home where a visitation was being held for her husband. Did you arrange to have your husband killed? Renee is arrested for obstruction of justice on Saturday night, but... Detectives believe she's still not telling the full story. That's when she chooses to waive her rights and talk to police without a lawyer present. After hours of questioning, she confesses to helping plan the death of her husband with her boyfriend, John Boyd Frazier. She is then charged with murder and extradited to South Carolina. Renee Poole's trial was held here at the courthouse in Conway in November of 1999. Prosecutors allege that she used the promise of sex on the beach to lure her husband into the shadows to be killed. It was a plot that they say she hatched while dancing at a strip club where she met her accomplice and lover. It was a story the national media could not resist. This made me a big news. I mean, I was working a lot of hours covering this story. It was just something that did not happen around there, and it, it got everybody's attention. So um, it, was, it was pretty much a circus around there for a while while this whole investigation was going on. Prosecutors began by painting a picture of an unhappy wife who would do anything and manipulate anyone to get what she desired. Kimberly Renee Poole treated this situation just as she had treated each and every situation in her life. What Kimberly Renee Poole wanted, Kimberly Renee Poole got. I think I called her Black Widow. She had sex with her husband. They were celebrating their anniversary in the dunes, literally right before her boyfriend confronted them on the beach and shot him. Well, she wanted the home. She wanted the daughter. She wanted the lover, but she didn't want the husband. And this is a case in which our victim, William Brent Poole, but for the actions of his wife of three years, a woman who wanted it all, 
would be alive today. But the prosecution had their work cut out for them. Except for Renee's confession, which she had since recanted, there was an exceptional lack of any physical evidence linking her to Brent's murder or any conspiracy to murder. In this case, it was largely circumstantial. I essentially took a story um, and then began to, to fill in the, the pieces um, with the evidence. I want you to take a look at State's Exhibit 3 and orient yourself with it, if you will. As I developed it, they began to fall into place. I felt like the, you know, the story sort of told itself. The first story the prosecutors told through the witnesses they called was of a young housewife unhappy in her marriage. How would you describe at least the relationship as you, as you observed it between the defendant and her husband? When I would talk to her on the phone, most of the time they were at each other's throats. And that's why prosecutors said Renee looked for love and happiness outside of her marriage in the arms of John Boyd Frazier. She uh, had told me that she was uh, in a relationship with John. She was having an affair and that he, uh, she was real, real head over heels over him. Did she indicate to you that she was teaching her daughter something new? Yes, she was teaching uh, her daughter to say I love you to John. The prosecution then claimed that in order to be with each other, Renee recruited John Boyd Frazier as her accomplice in a conspiracy to murder. In the first week of June, she meets with her lover and over the course of an evening plans a trap, which will ultimately gain her that one thing she wants, which, folks, is everything. The only evidence the prosecution presented to back up their claim of conspiracy was an acquaintance's account of a conversation he overheard one evening while at Frazier's home. John Renee, the little girl and Courtney stayed pretty much in the living room. Did you overhear any conversation by the defendant? The only thing, like I said, I heard that I heard her mention going to the beach. I didn't hear, you know, when or what beach or anything like that. Okay. Tell us, do you know what day that was? It was the Saturday before all this happened. To further bolster their claims that Frazier was in on the plot, the prosecution pointed to a calendar found at his home, one marked with a special date. There was a search warrant done at his house. I believe there was a calendar which indicated the dates that um, Brett and they were going to be at the beach. No murder weapon was ever found, but the prosecution presented several shell casings and live bullets found at the crime scene. In this case, I was able to examine the, both of these bullets versus each other, determined that both of them had indeed been fired by the same gun. They consisted of two fired 9mm Luger caliber cartridge cases and four unfired cartridges. The prosecution's next witness claimed to have sold Frazier a 9mm, one known for ejecting live cartridges. And do you remember what model or manufacturer handgun you sold to Mr. Frazier? It was a uh, TZ-75 9mm. The prosecution next called two bombshell eyewitnesses, a couple who stepped forward after police offered a reward to anyone who could provide useful information from the night of the murder. A really nice couple, Mark and Donna Hobbs. The evening of the of the murder, they were out on the boardwalk. Um, you know, they were in Iowa to place John Boyd Frazier at that location at that time. So that really began to supplement the case.
after we finally got the kids to sleep sometime after 11, and we asked her parents if they would mind, if they would mind watching the kids and we just we would want to go for a walk on the beach. When you saw this individual, was he looking at you? Well, he was looking at us. I'm not sure if it was me or my wife, but he was looking right at us. Yeah. The, the wife was concerned about him. She was, she was frightened. The husband was mad um, because he thought, this guy's looking at my wife. And so he, so they paid really close attention to him. Let me ask you if this is an accurate reflection of your testimony. June 9, 1998, Bob C. Frazier twice at the motel before midnight. Yes, sir. But the most damning evidence for Renee to overcome was her own words to police after she was arrested. At any time, has he told you or did you guys plan in any way, even if you were, weren't even taking it serious, about coming to Myrtle Beach or a secluded area and getting you and Brent away from the public or in a secluded place and he would kill him? Yeah. Okay. And there's still no doubt in your mind that it was John. Right. You're 100% positive right. that that person was John Frazier. Yeah. When I heard the tape, it certainly, I mean, I, I thought right then, I thought, I think she's a goner. I, I don't think she's gonna, she's gonna be acquitted. And when did you talk to him about that? About? About Myrtle Beach and it happening there? He did, it was our anniversary cut up. And uh, he said, well, really, where's he taking us? He wants to go to Myrtle Beach, or he wants to go to the beach. And uh, that's when he started talking about killing the prosecution had more than four days to present evidence that Renee Poole had conspired with John Boyd Frazier to kill her husband, Brent. Now, Renee's lawyer would have barely a day to present her defense. In South Carolina, our terms go by weeks, right? And so the goal is if you start on Monday, you better be finished by Friday. This whole court thing was a joke. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Depends on a defense for a girl to go to jail for the rest of her life gets four hours. Something's wrong. I want you to think a minute about what this young girl, this young woman has been through herself for the last year and a half. I think it was rough, uh, you know, from my client's perspective. Um, I would like to have had a week, you know, just to very leisurely go through and present our defense in this case. Uh, you know, we didn't have that. Uh, we didn't have that luxury. Bill Diggs represented Renee Poole. And he was an excellent trial attorney. He had a lot of experience, and he related well enough to the jury. Diggs first took aim at the investigator's sole focus on Renee as the alleged mastermind after Brent's parents told police they suspected that she was involved. So your testimony is these late-night three-in-a-row interviews with Renee were not done by design. No, they were not. Well, there was no physical evidence. They went down the road of uh, Renee and John Frazier. Uh, when they found out about her prior relationship with Frazier, he became a suspect, and they began to uh, focus in on that. Are you looking at it in terms of simply trying to find out how Frazier would have known to do it, or were you searching for an accomplice? We're searching of how Frazier was on the beach <coughs> at that time and on that day of how he knew to be there. But much of the prosecution's entire case rested on the Hobbs' testimony placing Frazier at Myrtle Beach the night of the murder. 
In order to better understand the conditions under which they say they could identify Frazier, I retraced the path of the man in black that night based on their version of events and diagrams submitted by the prosecution. It was just after 11 o'clock on the night of the murder when Mark and Dawn Hobbs decided to take a walk on the beach. So they exited from their hotel just on the other side of this pool. And when they got outside, they saw on the other side of this fence, close to where I'm standing, a man dressed in dark clothes. You saw this individual and he was approximately 80 feet from you? Yes, sir. Is, is this courtroom a large enough area where I can go and stand? you to give us an estimate of the distance between you and the gentleman that you saw? Yes, sir. Uh, let me go back. Let me start back. Do I need to go back here? Yes, I'm right here. Yes, sir. You can't at 12 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night, you can't see an individual on the beach. Um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there's some uh, light out there from the hotel. In the courtroom, you saw that we were at a distance of about 80 feet, and that's what Mr. Hobbs said in his uh, transcript. When Mark and Donna Hobbs walked to the top of the boardwalk leading to the beach, they saw that man again. This time, he was about 40 to 50 feet away from where I'm standing, in the bushes between the beach and the hotel. And while we're standing there, I was hugging my husband, and I spotted him again. He was just stooped down looking at the back of the motel. They didn't really have an opportunity to see Frazier or to see who it was. Not only was the man in black too far away to positively identify, says Diggs, he also believes the police stacked the deck of photos to bias the Hobbs into selecting Frazier. Well, they thought that they could identify Frazier, uh, but, but remember, there was never a physical lineup here that's only photographs. Do you recall, Mr. Hobbs, what you told them when they asked you what was the number one thing that you remember about him? so that you knew that was the individual that you saw? Uh, I'm not sure. It was probably either his eyes or his forehead. Diggs says the police only included one individual in the photo lineup who fit that physical description, John Boyd Frazier. We thought that the, the coercive techniques that the police detective used in this case, uh, which ran to every single witness, you know, the Hobbs would be no exception. And as far as the alleged conspiracy, Humphreys admits there was little evidence to back up his claim that the couple met to plot Brent Poole's death. I don't recall any objective evidence of communication between Renee and John Boyd Frazier as relates to the planning. And the prosecution presented little evidence supporting their claim that John Boyd Frazier loved Renee Poole enough to be her accomplice to murder. So I actually spoke with John Boyd Frazier about his side of what he says really happened in this case. Were you in love with Renee? Absolutely not. God, no. Renee Poole was an affair. Renee Poole was strictly sex, period. According to Frazier, his relationship with Renee had already run its course by the time Brent was killed. I didn't care anymore because I'm moving on. I'd already slept with two other strippers, from one from my club and one from Crazy Horse. Because that's what a 20-something single man does when he works at a strip club. And Frazier insists that the police timeline of events makes no sense. Could you walk us through what the Myrtle Beach police, what they allege the timeline is for you on the night of the murder? According to Myrtle Beach Police Department's timeline, I would have had to have left right at sundown 
found them, walked out on the beach, committed the murder, walked back across the beach, got back in the car, and drove back in four and a half hours. The problem was when they checked at Fraser's residence at 530, he was there, and he appeared to be asleep. It appeared uh, that I had awakened him. Okay, why do you say that? He's um, wearing bed, tight clothes, shorts, or... Frazier says that he was suffering from a cold he'd gotten while babysitting his nephew. I got sicker and sicker and sicker and felt worse and worse and worse. So the next two or three days I spent in a NyQuil, DayQuil, any kind of cold medicine I could get, stupor. On the third, the second or third night, that's when the police department showed up. And when police inspected the car that Frazier had been borrowing from a friend, it didn't appear to have been recently used. When did you first come down and look at your car? Uh, I walked down with him at that time. And did you look at your car? Uh, just, just enough to get in it. And did you get in it? Yes, I did. And what did you find in it? Nothing out of the ordinary. Okay, did you find any beach sand in it? No, I did not. Did you find any bug splatters on the front of it? No, I did not. You know, you can't explain to me how there would be no beach sand in the car that he had been in. Coming up, the defense tackles Renee's confession head-on and raises questions about how police used Renee's daughter against her. It's very easy to imagine a manipulation of the circumstances uh, that you're in. You know, any mother would say just about anything in order not to have that taken away. With less than a day to put on a defense, Renee Poole's lawyer's biggest challenge was walking back the damage done by her own words. After 11 or 12 hours of interrogation, on and on and on, see what she said. Look at the conditions under which she said those things. And you make a decision right there as to whether or not we've got a reliable statement here that we can take to the bank and convict this young girl on. This case is a classic false confession case. There's no evidence, credible evidence, that suggests this girl is guilty other than her statement. Police also lied to Renee during the interrogation about what John Boyd Frazier was telling them. I'm just saying I don't want you to to find yourself in a bind of what he's telling us. Right. Because right. I'm, I'm telling you, he's saying it's all your idea. Right. Prior to that time, had you interviewed John Frazier? Yes. And had he made that statement to you or anything remotely similar to that? No, he had not. All right. He hadn't told you anything, had he? No, he had not. And so you lied to Renee at that point, did you not, in the interview? And that's early on. I told her a statement that was not true. And after hours of questioning, detectives made implicit threats that Renee could lose her daughter forever unless she cooperated. I do not want to lose my daughter. You're not going to lose her. That's why you got to tell us right now because you got to think of her. I know that. You're not going to lose her. You're not going to lose her if you're honest. Renee says, I don't want to lose my daughter, and Detective Altman says, you're not going to lose your daughter if you tell us the truth. And then he spends three-quarters of a page telling her his version of the truth. And then he says, now isn't that right? And she says, yes. I'll say this, it's not the way I would have done it. Um, there was a lot of talk 
from the um, the lead investigator or the interviewer, um, and then maybe a word or two in response by Brene Poole. We thought that the statement was very, very suspect, and uh, in this situation, just wasn't enough to convict her. I'll bet that most of you have heard of people say, I would never admit to something that I didn't do. You just couldn't make me do that. But just put one of your children at risk. You'll say anything to help them. She had no option except to tell them what they wanted to hear and get out of there. The jury retired to deliberate and were gone much longer than Humphreys anticipated. I think we were there well into the night before the, before the verdict came back. There's a school of thought that it, the longer it goes, the worse it is for the government. Then we started hearing about them requesting information. And at that point, like, I don't know what's going to happen. The jury finally returned with a verdict on the night of November 13th, 1999. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please be seated. Madam, poor lady, has the jury reached a unanimous verdict? We have, Your Honor. This is indictment 99 GS 26 2250, the state of South Carolina versus Kimberly Renee Poole. Indicted for count one murder. The verdict is guilty. Count two criminal conspiracy. The verdict is guilty. I have the defendant come forward, please. The judge called her up there. Her lawyers had to pretty much hold her and had to almost drag her up in front of the judge. And Mrs. Poole, I have sat there very patiently listening to some horrible testimony during the past five years. He just, he really lit into her. Um, he really berated her. I see no basis in this world for showing you any mercy. It is therefore, Kimberly Renee Pooh, that the judgment and sentence of this court is that you be confined in the state penitentiary for the balance of your life. I'm very satisfied. I mean, it does not feel like a victory. I mean, it feels like justice. It doesn't feel like there's this great excitement that she's going to spend the rest of her life in, in prison. I think Renee got what she deserved. I think they're both responsible, but I'll tell you, I don't think John would have been there at that time had Renee not brought him there at that time. And I, I think she really is an initiator in, in, in this thing. But under the law, they're both equally guilty. We're, we're satisfied with the the verdict and the outcome. And it truly is the answer to the prayer that we had from the very first day. But for Renee and her family, it was a devastating loss and an unjust sentence. They were proven, had her guilty before she even went to trial. I, I don't agree with the verdict, okay? And so... I've got to disagree with the sentence, um, but the sentence, there was a, a little room for mercy in here, and I disagree with the judge. I think that um, the sentence was more harsh than it needed to be. Coming up, John Boyd Frazier gets his day in court. They say your life flashes before your eyes right before you die. Yeah, my life flashed before my eyes every single second of every single minute being a defendant. Kimberly Renee Poole was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for plotting the murder of Brent Poole with her alleged accomplice, John Boyd Frazier. 
I spoke to Frazier this May and asked him point blank about his involvement. You know, I have to ask you this question. Um, did you kill Brent Poole? Absolutely not. I had no ill will, no ill feelings or anything else against Brent Poole. I absolutely did not kill Brent Poole. Frazier continues to maintain that after being introduced at the Silver Fox, his relationship with Renee was strictly physical and brief. She would show up at the house about two or three times a week, and that went on for about a month. And that's how I met the woman who destroyed my life. At no point, he insists, did they ever discuss murder. There was not a conspiracy at all. Nothing even remotely close to that nature was ever brought up that she wanted him dead or that she was going to have him killed or anything else. Where were you when you found out that Renee Poole was blaming you? And what was your reaction? I didn't find out Renee Poole was blaming me until after I was arrested, until after the U.S. Marshals came and got me. Why do you think she blamed you for Brent Poole's death? I Honestly, I don't know. I know our theory on why she did it. That theory involved another man that Renee had also been having an affair with. But the judge refused to allow Frazier's lawyers to present evidence that pointed to the man's involvement. In February of 2000, the trial of John Boyd Frazier, Renee Poole's lover and accomplice to murder for the killing of Brent Poole, was also held here at the courthouse in Conway. Fran Humphreys again led the prosecution. John Boyd Frazier was represented by Morgan Martin and Tommy Britton, who, quite frankly, were two of the um, premier um, criminal defense attorneys in this area. They narrowed their issues down to the, the things they thought um, were most compelling and the hardest for us to, um, hardest for us to answer. Um, and primarily they wanted to attack the um, eyewitness identification of John Boy Frazier. But um, in this case, our witnesses were, this couple, they were just super compelling witnesses. That's right, those witnesses, Mark and Donna Hobbs. They're gonna fall back on the Hobbs every time. In the end, the Hobbs testimony and the state's circumstantial evidence were too much. After a short deliberation, the jury found John Boyd Frazier guilty of murdering Brent Poole. Frazier was sentenced to life in prison. After you were sentenced, did you have any hope at that moment? Not at that point, I had no hope whatsoever. My life was over, man. All I knew was that I just got sentenced to natural life in prison. That I literally just lost everything, including my own life. But Frazier's defense team didn't give up. They kept going and they kept trying because they knew the worst injustices that were done in my first trial. Ultimately, there was an appeal based on primarily the exclusion of um, um, expert testimony. In 2005, an appeals court ruled that the judge had erred by excluding expert video that could have cast doubt on the Hobbs' ability to see the perpetrator's identity at night and for not allowing a study showing an unduly suggestive lineup. The court tossed out Frazier's conviction and ordered a new trial. In the second trial, it all started out fairly well, like we were hoping that it would. Everything seemed to be moving forward pretty good. 
But once again, Frazier ran directly into eyewitness testimony from a familiar couple. The jury still believed the, the, the Hobbses when they sat there and pointed their finger at me. They presented to the jury like they presented to me, that you can absolutely 100% believe anything that comes out of their mouth. In 2007, Frazier was convicted a second time, but with a slightly different outcome. During sentencing, the judge overturned his life sentence. At that point, the judge gave him 30 years, which is a non-parolable 30 years. To this day, Frazier maintains his innocence. Up next, remember the theory that Frazier's lawyers wanted to introduce about a different killer? That theory may just set Renee Poole free. This lady didn't have a, a fair trial by any stretch of the imagination. Renee Poole appealed her conviction all the way to the South Carolina Supreme Court, but in 2003, it was denied. She's now in her mid-40s and serving her life sentence at the Leith Correctional Institution in Greenwood, South Carolina. To this day, Renee Poole maintains her innocence. She didn't have a lawyer for years until a small but dedicated group became interested in her case. At first, I was shocked. But then when I was uh, looking into her case a little bit more, I came to my own conclusion that it's a uh, wrongful conviction. Stephen Holliday started communicating with Renee Poole in 2015. I used to publish um, a culture and fashion magazine, and Renee was a subscriber, and she had reached out to me. He believes that Renee's extramarital affairs made her an easy target for the media and the prosecution. I do think that her lifestyle was on trial. Stephen created the group Free Kimberly, named after Renee's first name, to bring attention to her case. Stephen helped Renee obtain a new lawyer, and in 2017, they filed for a post-conviction relief hearing based on allegations that Bill Diggs didn't adequately defend her. We're arguing for the PCR post-conviction relief is that he didn't do enough of a defense for her and uh, that he was negligent. One shortfalling they noted was Diggs' failure to call Dr. Saul Kassin, a respected expert on false confessions, to testify. Diggs hired Dr. Kassin to analyze Poole's confession and he concluded that the interrogation techniques were highly coercive, making her confession highly unreliable. But the report was never presented at trial. It seemed like he was going to be a part of the defense, being a, a witness. That was a huge interest for Diggs. And then all of a sudden, uh, the email chain stops. The filing also faults Diggs for not more forcibly advancing the theory that another lover of Renee's, a man named Bruce, could have been the man in black who murdered Brent. The defense did want to you know, submit to the jury that Bruce was the killer. Um, he had a background with Renee. I mean, he, he sort of lived that lifestyle. Um, I believe he worked at the strip club. Diggs tried to advance this theory during Renee's trial, but the judge shot him down. As I understand that you want your paid investigator to get up and, and indicate what other leads might lead to somebody else without any specificity that his skull to uh, Mr. Frazier. Your Honor, it's right here. No, sir. Are still oh, no, you're talking about third-party kill. Yeah, We're not no, going no. into any, any leads 
that he's talking I'm about. I'm not going into any third-party guilt. I'm talking about leads that are No, you want to do what you saw done in O.J. Simpson, no, and I'm not going to let you try to investigate officers in this courtroom. The PCR filing alleges that police failed to pursue Bruce as a suspect. At least one eyewitness at Renee's trial supported the theory that another person could have killed Brent. Chris Hensley, a senior on a class trip, was on the beach just before Brent was murdered. On the chart here that's been marked Tuesday, June 9th, defendant and victim seen in dunes above 82nd Avenue North by Hensley. And Hensley sees man in all black on beach between 81st and 82nd Avenue walking north. Is that an accurate reflection of your testimony, Mr. Hensley? Yes, sir. That night of the shooting, uh, Chris Hensley was walking in one direction. Uh, he noticed somebody walking in the other direction. He looked over at me, just glared at me, and kept on walking. He glared at you? Yeah, he just glared at me and kept on walking. I remember he just looked over, very slowly turned his head, and very slowly turned his head back and kept on walking. Didn't acknowledge you at all? No, sir. Hensley later worked with a police artist to create a composite of the man. His composite of the gunman does not look anything like John Boyd Frazier. The composite of the gunman looks like the alternate suspect, which was Bruce. On the strength of the PCR filing, the courts granted Renee a hearing, which will be held later this year or early next year. The hope for her PCR filing is that a new trial is granted, that uh, we can bring in a team that can properly defend her. For his part, Fran Humphreys is not concerned that the state got it wrong. Um, at the end of the day, there was nothing that, um, in terms of evidence, that suggested he had anything to do with it. So, um, no, I didn't have any, I didn't have any um, concerns at all about whether or not Bruce was the killer. In the end, he believes the jury made the right decision. We asked a jury to judge that evidence, and they did. They did it consistently in three trials. So no, do I have any misgivings or concerns about um, her complicity in this case? Absolutely not, not at all. If Renee Poole's post-conviction relief hearing goes her way, she could be released this year. If not, she will have exhausted all of her appeals and will spend the rest of her life behind bars. There you have it, another deep dive into a truly fascinating case. You can find more episodes of this Court TV original series on our website where they are available to stream for free. Just check the show notes for a link. And to keep up with the biggest current true crime stories, be sure to tune into my show, Closing Arguments, every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.